0: Before we get into the specifics of this passage, a little bit of historical background information. In 307 BCE, the philosopher Epicurus, he bought a house with a private garden located outside the great city of Athens, a simple, beautiful space where those who were a part of his philosophy would build rich friendships with one another. This garden became a symbol of this kind of philosophy that was popular throughout ancient Greek, Epicureanism as it was called. School of philosophy didn't really believe in a a God, or if there is a God, quite distant and other. What they did believe in was that happiness is attained through pleasurable experiences. They believed in eating well, drinking well, having nice things, nourishing rich friendships, not hedonism. They looked down on overconsumption. Oppositely, they would avoid anything that that brought about uh, any measure pain and suffering, they were ever in pursuit of what they called a tranquility. The garden removed from the fray of city life felt like a, a good symbol, a good space for this philosophy. And then in the Hellenistic world, the other chief rival to Epicureanism was Stoicism. And on the whole, much more widely shared of the two. This was founded in Athens by Zeno of Cyprus in 308 BCE. And it's got its name because Zeno would teach his philosophy from the porch. Zeno means porch. And this was perfect because Epicureanism, where they went to the garden away from the fray of city life, outside the city. Stoicism really called for people to be on the porch in the center of public life, out front, outside of your house. They believe there really are rational principles that govern this world. They believe in a God, perhaps more distant and providential, but yes, a God. And and if we live according to the rational, virtuous principles ordained by the divine, we'll be happy. You have power over your mind, not outside events. Realize this and you will find your strength. Marcus Aurelius, one of the most well-known Stoics, said just that. The ideal human, then, for this Stoicism is not bound by their emotions, but by, 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 by their reason, by their self-sufficiency, by navigating the trials and pains that occur in the realities of life with a consistent dignity and virtue. And notably, that dignity and virtue is to be done, exercised out on the porch in the fray of civic life. And so, you have people of the garden and people of the porch. Friendship in the garden, duty in the fray. Pleasurable experiences, rational thinking. Trust your gut, your feeling. Trust your mind, the data. Imagine we can see how some of those two philosophies overlap and weave into our current reality in their own ways. Athens was the epicenter of these leading philosophies in ancient Greece, and eventually the Apostle Paul, we heard he arrives there. He's quite the debater. The Epicureans, the Stoics, they hear of him, and, and we hear them say, "May we know what this new teaching is you're presenting? It's strange to our ears." So they invite him. You heard to the Areopagus, a platform that served like a, you know like an ancient TED Talk kind of venue. Paul, what's your angle? What's your unique idea? Why don't you come on up to the platform and speak for public consumption debate? What what are you about? You heard how Paul's TED Talk begins. Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. As I was out looking in your city, looking carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with an inscription, To an unknown God. In other words, I've, I've taken some time to observe you, to learn what you're about, and I see a, a hunger in you for something bigger, something deeper, a, a worship hunger. Paul begins with this surreal awareness of the city and the people, and he leads not with scathing remarks about what they're worshiping. Oppositely, he praises the religious impulse that he sees. And then if, if you read his speech, he continues finding this common ground, verses 20 through 4 through 29 of what we just read. Paul says, God made all things and has given all creatures life and breath. Stoics are nodding their head. Okay? God does not dwell in temples made by hands. The Epicureans and Stoics nodding their head. God made all the nations and appointed times and boundaries for each. The Stoics, yeah, an orderly sense of how things work. In God, quote, we live and move and have our being. We are God's offspring. Here, Paul is quoting an Athenian poet. It's as if he's saying, You know what I, what I believe really has already been said so beautifully by one of your own poets. He quotes them. A good 90% of Paul's speech involves naming commonalities, bridge building, shared assumptions, especially with the Stoics, a little easier there because they more obviously believe in a God. As one commentator puts it, it's clear Paul wants to, quote, maximize the impression of agreement with his audience. Why? I mean, when you stand for things that matter in life, when you stand for things like that and are against them, what is false, what is wrong, what is dangerous? What rationale is there for even suggesting a kinship with that which is wrong? One of my favorite reflections from, comes from Abraham Lincoln in his speech. He gave in 1842 to the Washington Temperance Society. It's a longer quote, but I want to read it in full because it feels like it was written for 20, 23 years, except for the fact that they wrote longer sentences back then. (laughs) It's an old and true maxim that a drop of honey catches more flies than a gallon of gall. So with men, people. If you would win a man to your cause, first convince him that you are his sincere friend. Therein is a drop of honey that catches his heart, which, say what he will, is the great high road to his reason, and which, when once gained, you will find but little trouble in convincing his judgment of the justice of your cause, if indeed that cause really be a just one. On the contrary, assume to dictate to his judgment, or to command his action, or mark him as one to be shunned and despised, and... He will retreat within himself, close all avenues to his head and his heart. And though your cause be naked truth itself, transform to the heaviest lance, harder than steel, sharper than steel could be made. And though you throw it with more than Herculean force and precision, you shall no more be able to pierce him than to penetrate the hard shell of a tortoise, with a rye straw. Such is man, and so must he be understood by those who would lead him, even to his own best interest. If you want to see another person to your side, to follow your lead, to be open to something that's important to you, a view, faith, a vote, a if you want your child to listen and be persuaded, if you want any measure of lasting, enduring, good influence in really any arena of life, it's like trying to penetrate the hard shell of a turtle with rye straw if you simply dictate, demand, insist, control. And here's the real catch, according to Lincoln. Even if you're 100% right, does not matter. A drop of honey catches the heart. Or Athenians, I see you are so very religious. I don't take this as Paul being a stereotypical you know, car salesperson just trying to say whatever they got to say to get the, the deal done. I think this is genuine and honest. I, I think this is Paul being in his own words, all things to all people. This is Paul recognizing no matter who we encounter, where we encounter them, they are made in the image of God. And so have something of God coming in and through their lives, their beliefs, however muted sometimes. To be sure, this is not easy for Paul. Verse 16, just a little before our reading today. Uh, When he arrives to Athens, we're told Paul is, quote, grieved by what he sees. Other translations have angered, provoked, stirred to deep discontent. When Paul looks around at what these people are doing, where they're spending their money, putting their attention, where their allegiances lie, can't you see the truth? This is terrible. Now, to be sure, sometimes the only response to utter evil and falsehood is you turn the tables in the temple, right? The anger expressed is a, is a prophetic gesture, and Jesus did it, right, in the temple. Turned them right over, the heart heartbeat of the religious people. But turning the temples is, is a pronounced and prophetic moment. Use it all the time as the way of being. You may as well poke straw against a turtle, And so Paul, the one who famously wrote, love is patient, love is kind, looks upon these people gripped by and gripping to false and bad gods, and leads with, Athenians, I see you are very religious. And yet, you know what makes Paul's speech so remarkable? is not only the great length he goes to, to share these commonalities, to find and build these bridges, show forth all of this patience. It's also Paul recognizing the central thing about which he simply can't compromise. The central thing that, that makes him different, whether the Athenians go for it or not. I wonder if this moment, uh, at this, he doesn't step straight to the center of the, the TED Talk stage Plant his feet firmly and declare what we have in verse 31. God has fixed a day on which he will have the world judged in righteousness by a man, Jesus, whom he appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. 90% of the speech, bridge building, commonality. Connection, But also there's this most basic thing about followers of this man named Jesus. Jesus is the singular one who is the judge of the world. Jesus is the standard for living. Jesus, not pleasure. Jesus, not reason. Jesus, not parties. Jesus has the final say in what matters, who matters, how things go. And why does Jesus have the final say according to Paul? Because... Jesus rose from the dead. He's stronger than death. He's alive. For Paul, the resurrection is the the thing that confirms and validates everything Jesus taught and did. Because Jesus is raised from the dead, his way, his teaching, his, his judgment carries an authority unparalleled. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some scoffed. We read in Acts A crucified Jewish man alive again and in charge of everything. No one said the TED Talk was going to sit well with everybody. They're scandalized, really. And and perhaps they're scandalized because they'd heard some of Jesus' judgments. If he's judged, this is some of the way this goes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Those judgments are anathema to Epicureans who prize the avoidance of pain. Or or again, so the last will be first and the first will be last. The Stoics who deeply value logic and order and a certain reason to how things work. Or perhaps they recall this judgment of Jesus by way of a parable. Then he will say to those on his left, depart me. Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. Truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Oh, that is not a big priority for the people of the garden who are just trying to enjoy a few years of life in that space. Or maybe again, in all of Paul's debating, he explained to them the most fundamental verdict that Jesus, the judge, has rendered upon humanity. The one Paul says, perhaps most concisely, in the book of Romans. While we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. The judge's ultimate verdict is to name the sin and evil of every person and all of creation and take the sin and have it nailed upon the cross and forgive every measure of it. Final verdict of the full mess, it's nailed there. It's forgiven. The TED Talk you heard ends with some scoffing. Some, we read, want to hear more from Paul. Some, we read, believe. Some, some like the idea of such a judge in charge of all. When we first started coming back to in-person worship in 2021, I, I shared with some of the, the church officers and, and some of you that a pastor friend of mine in Atlanta had shared with me. She said she had a neighbor down the street who, a few months into the pandemic, said, oh, man, I really need community. I'm going to either join a book club or a church. (laughs) She joined a book club. (laughs) Kind of that Epicurean, people of the quiet garden option. And nothing wrong with that. I love a good book club. I think there's plenty of room for the both and, and a number of you are both and church book club. Now, my pastor friend didn't know or say exactly why this, this neighbor chose that and also not church. I'm sure we can make our guesses as to that. But I shared this story with our leadership to raise this question. Why church? I mean, why are we here? What are we doing? Like, what 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 is good and different and real about anything we're about that is somehow distinct from... A book club, a, another nonprofit, a civic organization where we stand on the porch and make a difference. What, what are we doing? And like our officers that year, you, we could really have a nice, long, extended time that year and beyond. Uh, discussion around all this, but minimally, we reminded ourselves of this one fundamental truth. Jesus. Not a platform, not a proposition, not a philosophy, but a person. Yes, we have affinities and overlaps with the people of the garden and the porch, but the singular thing on which the church stands, the singular thing in which the church lives and moves and has its being, is Jesus. It's a belief that we have been found by him. And that he really is in charge. And that he is really stronger than the worst that we've done or can do or this world can do. And it's this belief that we truly find in his teaching, in his life, in his person. The way of life. In fact, I read an article just this past week by the Ministry Collaborative out of Atlanta, Georgia. They are connected with thousands of churches in all kinds of different denominations. And they made a few observations of what makes for vital churches Right now, in this country, in our day and age, what's the commonality they're seeing? Vital churches are putting Jesus front and center. This actually needs to be said out loud right now. The church and its ministry is called to focus on many concerns in life and society, and they all flow from and into the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Otherwise, we're trying to be just one more cultural institution. Perhaps today, then, there is not one super practical takeaway, but instead a reminder of who we are, or, or whose we are, which may be even more important, because we're not fundamentally young or old, this generation or that, Republican or Democrat, garden or porch, citizen of the United States, citizen of this country, this title or that, most fundamentally, most foundationally, we are the body of Christ, the people of Jesus. It is in him we have all measure of our hope. It is in following him we believe is the way of life. It is trusting that he really is in charge. Thanks be to God. Amen.